So what would you do if your mother used to be a nun, but then quit because her order wasn't conservative enough? Well, if you're like Dr. Paul Zak, you'd begin searching for a biological basis for morality. After earning degrees in both mathematics and economics from San Diego State University, he earned a fellowship to the University of Pennsylvania. He graduated with a PhD in economics and went on to do postdoctoral training in neuroimaging at Harvard. Paul is now a professor of economics, as well as the founding director of the Center for Neuroeconomic Studies at Claremont Graduate University. He is also a professor of neurology at Loma Linda University Medical Center. Paul was the first to use the term neuroeconomics in publication and has been a pioneer in this new field that integrates neuroscience and economics. His book, The Moral Molecule, was published by Dutton Press in April of 2012. In it, he discusses how the ancient brain chemical oxytocin influences and affects morality. Nicknamed Dr. Love, Paul was named by Wired Magazine as one of the 10 sexiest geeks in 2005 and believes that the act of hugging raises oxytocin levels. In addition to his impressive academic resume, his research has been featured in publications such as the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and Scientific American. We'll talk to Paul about the process of turning his scientific findings into a general audience book, introducing narrative into a nonfiction story, the importance of keeping up with all those Twitter followers, and which is the best brain lobe, as Dr. Paul Zak joins us on the Scripts and Scribes podcast right now. Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Krista Bean, and today we're welcoming to the show author and neuroeconomist Paul Zak. Thank you for joining us today, Paul. Thanks, Krista. Great to be on with you. So you've written a book that's called The Moral Molecule, and I want to get to that in just a minute. But first off, um, you're, you are a neuroeconomist. You're a professor of economics as well as a professor of neurology. What exactly is neuroeconomics? It's, I mean, it's an integration of neuroscience and economics, but those seem like two very different fields. How are those integrated? Right. So I know that you've never made a bad decision in your life, but I know your brother-in-law who bought real estate in 2007, you know, what's that about? You know, why are people actually making bad decisions if we have such big brains? So neuroscientists have these wonderful measurement techniques to understand what the brain's doing, but they often use very trivial kind of tasks. Um, and economists have, I think, very good models of human behavior without really understanding why those models work or don't work. So by marrying these two fields, um, we have a very active way to probe the brain to understand how people make decisions and potentially help people improve the decision-making. Um, and so in my case, I was interested in why people were ever nice to others. And because I'm a big skeptic, I didn't want to just ask people, hey, do you ever give money to the homeless or whatever? I wanted to tempt people with virtue and vice using money. So there's a, an economic approach, which is, I'm going to use money as a convenient way to, to see what you care about. And then at the same time, I'll use that task to probe the brain to figure out why people are taking all the money and running or sharing it with a stranger. That's interesting. Yeah, because if you just ask someone straight up, they'll say, oh, of course, I'm, I'm good all the time. I always give money to the homeless. And without you know, actually having the, the tangible money there, it seems like they, you know, easy to say and not, not easy to uh, act upon. And there's even, I think, a deeper uh, physiologic reason, which is, you know, if you have a big uh, greasy hamburger for lunch, your liver doesn't say to you, hey, Christo, what's the deal with all the <laughs> grease, right? So there's also no evolutionary reason why your brain should clearly articulate its inner workings. 
they really need to probe the brain to figure out what's going on because we're just not good at relating why we're doing what we're doing, particularly for decisions that are complicated, that involve a whole bunch of factors. And so uh, this uh, so-called moral molecule I discovered is so evolutionarily old that it's outside of our conscious awareness. These are very subtle signals. It's the only way to really figure out how they're working is to invasively, you know, go in and, and see what's going on in the brain. Wow. Okay. So now you, you explore these ideas in your book. Talk a little bit about the moral molecule. Right. So it was really, uh, this is based on 10 years of research in my lab and in the field, trying to understand why people would ever be good, like when no one's watching. You know, why would you ever, I don't know, trust a stranger? Why would you ever be generous to a person you don't know? Why would you donate money to charity? And we started running experiments, behavioral experiments on these. Um, as I sort of suggested earlier, people really couldn't articulate why they were doing what they were doing. And we would, you know, run experiments where you could say you trust a stranger and he or she may or may, or may not reciprocate with money. And, um, you know, ask people, See, so why did you send money to a stranger? And the most common answer was, uh, I don't know. Hmm. Well, I don't know. It doesn't You can't really build a theory on that. Right. So, out of frustration, and because I have a background in biology and neuroscience, I said, well, let me just try to, you know, figure out what the brain's doing directly, try to measure that directly. And, you know, now, as you said, that's a field now called neuroeconomics, but at the time it was just frustration. Like, I can't do my job properly. I think this is a big question. You know, why would you ever uh, trust people? Um, and so let's try to start taking some some uh, slices down to figure out why people are virtuous. And the reason for doing that was in my work as an economist in the late 90s, I had shown that measures of interpersonal trust on the country level strongly predicted which countries would be rich and which were poor. So high-trust yeah. countries were, by and large, wealthy countries, and poor countries were low-trust countries, because when trust is high, you can undertake more economic transactions that facilitate the creation of wealth and reduction of poverty. So there was a real you know, driving reason for me to understand why people would trust strangers, because you could help alleviate poverty by putting mm-hmm. policies in place to help raise trust. That's really interesting. Yeah, to have that, that literally very real-world sort of, um, uh, not approach, but the, you know, a real-world ap- application for something exactly like right. that. Exactly right. And I think merging these two fields, you know, I'm trying to go in the book from molecules all the way up to what people do in their daily lives and their relationships up to the level of societies. You know, how do you create a society that's more prosperous, that's more loving, that's more tolerant? Mm-hmm. And, you know, those words altogether sound, you know, a little jarring, right? Loving, prosperous, to- how can all those things go together? <laughs> but when you understand that they have a common uh, brain mechanism behind them, then you get to connect those dots. So I think, you know, for this book, I think a pure neuroscientist would not have been able to connect all those dots nor a pure economist. And so by being in a sort of in-between area, um, I think I had an advantage. The second advantage from a writing perspective, I think, was um, because um, I'm, you know, my PhD is in economics, even though I have training in neuroscience, I didn't know how hard the neuroscience was to do when I started doing this. And so mm-hmm. one of my colleagues actually dissuaded me strongly. So it was a career-ending move to go in this area. And um, so I'm sort of a stubborn person. So part of the there's a couple motifs that run through the book, but one of this, one of those is this sort of science detective story. Like, how is it possible to discover something new about the brain? Mm-hmm. I mean, we've been studying the brain for hundreds of years, and so 
there's a little of that, uh, you know, that shows up in there, like just this kind of single-minded obsession I had with trying to get a chemical basis for morality, not just saying, well, um, you know, our brains make us moral because there's some evolutionary survival advantage to it. That was too wishy-washy for me. I really want to find, is there a chemical? Because if I have a chemical, it's very concrete. I can measure it. I can manipulate it. And so part of that is kind of going through the evolution and, and then melding that with my own story where I just kind of couldn't let this idea go. And you, you, you just mentioned your, your own story. And can you tell me a little bit about how you first became interested in this, this field? Well, I should say this was a four-year odyssey. So it was based on you know, 10 years of lab research. But I had started writing this book about four years ago. And for the writers listening, really struggled. Uh, for the first couple of years, I just couldn't get the right balance between, um, you know, it's not the Paul Zach story, which no one cares about, honestly, and it's not the story of a molecule, which I don't think almost anybody's going to care about. It's really this discovery of of some key part of our human nature that had been missing. So there's got to be a little Paul Zach in there, and there's got to be a little molecule in there, but most of it is sort of illustrating the larger points through all these crazy experiments I got sucked into. Um, and I should say, like, I love being in a lab. It's just it's happy for me. I do a lot of work with blood, and I'm happy to work there and work with the blood products and do all the separations, and <laughs> I'm just happy as a clam. But I got pulled into working with prisoners and um, taking blood at weddings and uh, going to the rainforest of Papua New Guinea and taking blood from indigenous people and on and on and on. So... Um, you know, what I understood was that this book is really narrative-driven, and the science undergirds the narratives, but basically it's, a, it's really about stories, the stories of these discoveries, as the stories that have a lot of power, um, emotional power, and illustrative power to tell the bigger picture. So once I kind of understood that, and I should also say, for full disclosure, and, and brought on a wonderful writing partner named Bill Patrick, uh, Bill's a novelist and uh, a longtime science editor at Harvard University Press. Hmm. And Bill really got that this is a big idea book. It's a, it's a book that, that really needs lots of narrative and really helped me craft these sort of through lines in the book with narrative. And so one of those, to now finally get to your question, was you know coming to terms honestly with why I spent 10 years of my life looking for this moral molecule. So the dishonest answer I gave you already, which is, well, trust is important to help alleviate poverty, and the first kind of moral behavior I looked at was trust, and you know from there, then you start looking at other moral behaviors. But the honest answer, which I realized when I started writing the book, is that I had really rejected the uh, kind of top-down thou shalt, thou shalt not morality um, as a teenager because it was so powerful in my house. Before my mother was my mother, she had been a Catholic nun. Hmm. Um, not only was she a nun, she was she had quit being a nun in the mid 1950s because she thought that her content was not sufficiently conservative for her in the <laughs> 1950s. So you know, you think you had an interesting childhood? Talk to me. Um, <laughs> so like your room's not clean, you could be going to hell. I mean, that's a lot of pressure for a kid. So um, okay. I really rejected this sort of top-down, you know, mom or the Catholic Church or somebody has the direct pipeline to God, and they know exactly what's right and wrong, because I observed that people who are of different religions, people who had no religion, I thought were equally moral in many ways. And so 
I said, you know, there's got to be a, a more general reason behind this. So from a writing perspective, um, what it meant is that, you know, my mother is this sort of straw man that runs through the book. So instead of saying, you know, the sort of top-down, theologically-based morality is the straw man, it's much more compelling to have my mom show up. Um, and so, you know, she's sprinkled throughout the book, and um, and even to this day we have uh, I have debates with my mother about this. We try to avoid the topic now, but um, <laughs> so as we talked, we spoke before. But as you know, um, after I wrote the book, um, one of my graduate students who read the book uh, pre-publication was was kind of uh, shocked by how much my mom was in there. Not everywhere. I mean, every not a chapter is about mom, but it's like little little tidbits are dropped in throughout the chapters as a sort of straw man. And so he said, does your mother know how much she's in the book? And I said, yeah, I don't think so. So I actually had to call my mom up and, and tell her, um, hey, mom, you know, it's the <laughs> book, and you're kind of sprinkled throughout it. So I um, hope that's okay. And because she's old and she's sweet, and she said, oh, honey, I'm sure whatever you did is just wonderful. Don't worry about it. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, I think that's also a good, uh, you know, um, writing approach, which is, you know, pick out, uh, you know, that sort of uh, antagonist in the story mm-hmm. and then have that antagonist bring to life, come to life as well. And so I think doing this in a, in a you know, general audience science book is a little harder. So that's why it took uh, some time and took uh, uh, Bill to help me kind of bring out those narrative structures mm-hmm. so that story has its throughput. And um, one of the last chapters is actually a chapter on religion, which is something I assiduously avoided uh, in my research because I just didn't want to, uh, you know, even get involved in that question. I just didn't like, are religious people more moral, less moral? Do they release more of the small molecule, oxytocin or not? So then I started working on the book and said, again, I just can't be a big weenie my whole life. I've got to take on this question. Mm-hmm. So subsequently have had religious people come in the lab and worship. We've actually gone to churches and taken blood. We've gone to um, non-religious ceremonies that mimic things that happen in churches, like folk dances and soldiers marching, and um, and so a lot of those again are, you know, they're true experiments, but they're also narrative structures that illustrate this larger point, which is anytime you put people in community and give them even a weak uh, motivation to be together, some weak purpose, they're very likely to release oxytocin and then have this sense of closeness to the people around them and even people outside their own group. And I think that's really an amazing thing. I mean, that's one of the punchlines of the book is that we're connecting species. We'll find almost any excuse to connect. Mm-hmm. And we don't need, uh, you know, it to be a sin if you don't go to church on Sunday. We don't need, we'll, we'll, we'll form, uh, you know, uh, groups. So just to illustrate that point one, one step further, this is not in the book, but when I was on book tour the last couple of months uh, in Boston, I spoke at the Harvard Humanist Chaplaincy. So this is basically uh, a group of uh, agnostics or atheists in which they have an atheist chaplain for the, the non-religious uh, students at Harvard. Hmm. And they said, we love your work. We want you to come in and talk to us. And what are they doing? They hold meetings on Sundays in a little hall, just like people who go to church. And hmm. In fact, when I went there, it was probably the first time they had, had singing at their group, and they sang, you know, secular songs. They sang the Beatles, uh, All You Need Love, and a couple of things. And so, because singing we've shown releases oxytocin. So, again, if you want to form community with these other individuals, 
who have you know, some shared uh, uh, interests with you, yeah, being together, having a purpose, singing, all these things work. And so I think, again, the book is, you know, based on experiments, but there's so many clear applications. And the last chapter is really about how do you use this knowledge that we've developed to improve your life, uh, improve the way your organizations you work in and function, uh, improve societies. And so um, it's both, you know, this sort of science discovery story, but also very practical and, and sometimes weird and funny. So, I, I, all, you know, you try to get all those aspects into the book. Right. And, yeah, and it's interesting because writing a, a nonfiction science-based book and trying to, have, you know, make that appeal to the masses is, um, you know, it's a challenge. And I know when you, when you mentioned that your, your mother was sort of a, a through character in the book, did you find, was that an, uh, an intentional thing as you were trying to bring out narrative or did you sort of find as you were putting the book together that she kept popping up and like, oh, this is a good way to uh, have a uh, through narrative? Yeah, it actually came in late in the book and, and we did a rewrite. So, um, yeah, it was coming up and I was sort of setting up this, there's, there's a bunch of sort of antecedent factors. One was when I worked at a, at a gas station when I was 18 years old and uh, kind of down by a freeway in a sketchy part of central California. And and I got conned once. A con man came in and had this great story and this piece of jewelry he found and blah, blah, blah. It's a very classic con uh, called the pigeon drop. And that really initiated my interest in human behavior. So you know, you, you're in high school and you're watching people come to this gas station and you're seeing all these variations of behavior from the drunks to the gangbangers to the, uh, you know, the jilted wives to the whatever. And so that was a great little laboratory just to observe the humans. Mm-hmm. It becomes very addictive, you know. So anyway, there was a through line there. And um, and the, the my mother being a nun thing was just kind of a throwaway in, the, in one of the last chapters, second to last chapter on religion. And then once I kind of saw that, that there was this tension within myself on kind of rejecting this top-down morality and that perhaps driving this obsession with finding a kind of a bottom-up biological basis, then we went back and said, oh, yeah, look at that. This, this will actually work in as a, as a through line throughout the whole book. So that's why it took a while to kind of get this together. Um, and, you know, and, and again, having the, the experiment support that. So in some sense, I have a very privileged area I live in, which is, if I have a question I'm interested in and I can, you know, get some funder to give me a little bit of money, I can run an experiment and investigate that. So, mm. um, so for many things in the book, you know, it would, it would be that. It would be like, oh, here's an interesting question. Um, let's run an experiment. Let's get some real data on it. And then let's explore this in a, in a, in a variety of ways that makes sense for the book and also makes sense scientifically. We'll generate, you know, scientific publications. So let me give you a concrete example of that. So um, there's a chapter in the book called Bad Boys. Mm-hmm. And so testosterone, which is 10 times higher in men than in women, um, is a big inhibitor of oxytocin, this moral molecule. So in experiments where we give testosterone to men, compared to themselves on placebo, they're more selfish and more entitled. Mm-hmm. And they also punish people who violate cooperation norms much more than lower testosterone individuals. Okay, so why do we get bad behavior? Part of it's testosterone. So how testosterone interact with this brain system, system is interesting in experiments we've run. But how do you illustrate that? So I was thinking about this, and we've been thinking about the interaction. So testosterone also narrows uh, men's focus, or anybody's focus. Sometimes women have very high testosterone levels, although it's mostly men. It mm-hmm. narrows your focus to the present, 
is associated with things like risk taking. So that's why, you know, these we won't mention any names, but you know, famous politicians who have affairs, <laughs> they're thinking, dude, don't you know? Like everyone's going to find out. But yeah. when you turn this high, yeah. you're all about the present. You're all, you know, the, the future is just a distant, you know, idea to you. So, so I said, how do I really illustrate that and, and investigate this? And so I have a fear of heights, and I, which I think is appropriate for all humans. I think we should not be <laughs> on top of things. And so um, we're thinking about how to illustrate this. I said, well, let's look at the interaction between fear, narrowing your focus. And so I agreed to um, step out of an airplane at 12,000 feet and take my flight before and after and see what happens to me, but to give myself testosterone before I did. And so, again, it's a great way to illustrate this. There's real data associated with this. Um, it was the most fearful and exciting thing I've ever done in my life. And, um, uh, you know, and we filmed it and actually some pictures of this on the website. Mm-hmm. So, you know, literally once I stepped out of the airplane, it was a tandem uh, uh, skydive. So step out there, the guy, uh, you know, parachutes, you know, free fall for 50 seconds and then pull the chute, get to the ground. And there was a little golf cart waiting for me, zoomed me to the side of the field. And I jabbed an arm and uh, a needle in my arm and took four tubes of blood. And then measured exactly what was happening, you know, during the skydive. Um, so that's just a great way to have a good narrative story. You know, it's a sample size of one, so that's not scientifically valid, but it illustrates the larger point of what testosterone does to guys. And uh, even though I was really frightened, my stress hormones were up more than 400% uh, wow. between before the jump and after. And we actually had a graduate student go up uh, on the plane with me and had me do these cognitive tasks, which I just couldn't even do. <laughs> yeah, I was really focused on getting out the door. But once, you know, once I saw the door open, it was like gung-ho, like I was ready to do anything. Oh, wow. And so, again, I think absent the testosterone, it would have been a much different experience. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's, that's the kind of value of having um, essentially this hook, this, this hook that generates narratives, which is I, can, I do a lot of self-experimentation uh, in the book. And I have this rule, this sort of, because you know, I'm a morality guy. I have this rule that I don't make participants in an experiment do anything that I wouldn't do myself. So uh-huh. I always put myself to the experiment first. And then sometimes the opposite happens. Sometimes when I'm doing an experiment, I discover the experiment really is about me. Mm-hmm. So if I could give one more example of that. Um, so uh, one of the experiments I did in the religion chapter was to look at whether oxytocin release is universal. And so I went to especially the farthest place I could go from, you know, the developed world where all, you know, I had done all my experiments was the highlands of Papua New Guinea and was embedded with this little village of a thousand people of subsistence farmers living in the rainforest, you know, brought generators, brought medical supplies and spent a week over there and, and took blood from them while they did some ritual activities. Um, but basically the experiment was a complete failure in the beginning because we had equipment problems. We had all kinds of things just, we were just stuck there. We had to fix these problems. It took some time because there's no, there's no electricity, there's no running water. And it's, you know, it just takes, it takes time to fly more supplies in. Mm-hmm. Um, but what happened was that instead of me experimenting on these uh, you know, indigenous peoples in Papua New Guinea, I discovered the experiment was really about me. It was about me you know, being able to connect to people who don't speak my language, who uh, don't have running water, who, you know, brutally kill animals to eat them. I mean, I watched them kill a pig. It was just the most disgusting thing. Mm. Beat it to death. But the most amazingly open and loving people I've ever met. And, you know, as as you start, you know, I went there for an experiment, but 
the real finding was that it was so easy to connect to people all around the planet. Mm-hmm. And that's the working of this molecule oxytocin is that it motivates us to connect to others. And I really feel like this is my village. In fact, I'm looking right now at a picture on my wall, um, a bunch of pictures I took of the villagers there, and just the amazing experience they allowed me to have to come into their homes, to to be part of their sacred uh, rituals. Um, you know, that that's just an amazing story and was really personally transformative for me. And so that, you know, I get to pick that up as well. So, you know, there's, there's a, a bunch of kind of tensions that develop in which you're doing an experiment, but then you're changed by the experiment as well. That, that's really interesting. And I think also from a, from a reader's point of view, you know, having a, an author, especially one who is uh, a scientist, who you generally think, okay, scientists are in labs and they're doing things that are way over my head, um, to see them out in the world actually participating in these experiments themselves um, and, and using themselves as, as guinea pigs, so to speak, it, it creates a, you know, a, an affinity for that person. It makes them more, you know, instead of just a guy in a coat in a lab, he becomes much more human and relatable as an author and as a, a narrator of the book. Yeah, I think so. And, and honestly, the whole, this whole 10-year research program has profoundly changed my own life. I've really changed my whole life about being much better at connecting to people um, you know, allowing myself to use the L word, love, and mm-hmm. and really be a you know focusing on being as loving as I can. So as you know, I got this nickname, Doctor Love, <laughs> after a uh, magazine reporter for Past Company a couple of years ago outed me because I hug everybody. Yeah. Oh, at the and, ALA know, conference, you were doing that. That's funny. I was. In fact, yeah. <laughs> so we, I signed 200 copies of uh, my book uh, last week when we met, and I gave out 198 hugs. I had two refusals. Um, and so, um, you know, that's, you know, that's just one way that I've focused my life on being a much better connector and then encouraging people to say, you can use the L word, not in the romantic sense, but in a sense of philia that I really care about you. I'm, I'm really, I'm willing to put resources and time into seeing that you're happier and healthier. And, um, and I think once you start opening up that conversation, um, it becomes really an amazing thing. So again, I just this is not in the book, but just as an example, um, I, uh, one of my uh, undergraduate professors, who was just absolutely dear friend, was a was a uh, mentor to me, was the best man at my wedding. He must be 75 or 76 now, and I uh, was on the phone with him recently, and um, getting ready to say goodbye, he said, "I love you," and I never had said, I never heard that from him before. He's kind of an old guy, and you know, and we're very close. It's you know. It's, really calls me a second son. But it was such a wonderfully kind thing. I thought, oh, isn't isn't the world a beautiful place where someone you've known for 30 years, you know, can just say, in the very real sense, I really value you. I think you're, you're this most amazing human being. It just made my day. So I think, you know, allowing yourself to do that with others mm-hmm. um, is okay. I think it's, you know, and it's somehow having the science behind it makes it easier. It's not just I'm feeling gushy or I want to love the whole world, but really understanding that what human beings want more than anything is to connect to others, is to love and be loved. And there's real biology behind it. There's improvements in mood. There's improvements in the immune system. You know, people live longer and live healthier. Mm-hmm. There's lots of reasons to do this, but it's also just this primal need of human beings. And even though in some sense we all know that, by doing this experimentally, by going through the science, by illustrating it with lots of stories, I think it makes it a little more palatable. 
Mm-hmm. And so e- even, for example, for, uh, you know, for corporate groups, there's a whole chapter on there on markets, how markets depend on morality. And when I speak to corporate groups and I tell them, I'm giving you permission now to use the L word, and people are really transformed. You think, well, these are, you know, this is a big business, and, uh, you know, we can't be using the word love. God forbid, you know, we'll get sued <laughs> or something. Uh, but you'd be surprised. And say, look, this science behind it. Here's the science. Here's why it's important. Um, you can do this. And, and the story is the way to do that. I don't think it's, you know, I never go in to give talks and give, um, you know, show 150 slides of data. Mm-hmm. But I tell them the stories, the stories that are in the book and the stories we've discussed, that there's science behind this. You can download all those scientific papers, read them yourself. But what the book gives you is the context and, and the application of that, that you don't have room to discuss in the scientific paper. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, it's, it's been a great learning experience for me on how to relate this work to a general audience who not only are potentially interested in this topic, but want to use it, want to use it to improve their lives, want to use it to, um, you know, make their families run better or make their, um, you know, their organizations uh, more joyful. Mm-hmm. And, and so, it, it's a, you know, it's a very positive book. I think humans are actually much better than we get credit for <laughs> or give ourselves credit for. So that's that's sort of big news. Not all humans, not all the time. Even you, Krista, have been grumpy once in a while. But I have never been grumpy, ever. You've never been grumpy. <laughs> never. But, uh, so this, again, tells you why. It tells you what that, you know, what is that um, inflection point between wonderful, sweet Krista, who's always nice to me, and today, you're kind of a raving maniac, not today, but once in your life. You know, <laughs> how does that happen? How do we do that? And so by understanding the underlying uh, brain chemistry of this, I think it gives people a language. So instead of saying, oh, Krista, she's a terrible person because she yelled at me, I can say, oh, she's always been great to me, and today she's really having a bad day. Mm-hmm. So how do I understand that? Oh, I understand that stress hormones inhibit her ability to connect to other people, her ability to release oxytocin. And so now I have this, this different kind of language. So um, I think, again, that's part of the writing of the book is to give people this language of um, human behavior, of human social neuroscience and not kind of jump to conclusions about this person's evil, this person's good, because we're all good and evil at some level, you know, depending on the situation, depending on our own physiologic state. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, the book ends with a kind of a, an implicit plea for tolerance that, you know, we're all buffeted by these different chemicals, and because they're so evolutionarily old, we just don't know about that. We're not consciously aware of this. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes we do things that, you know, in retrospect, we regret. Um, and then what do you have to do? you got to go into your colleague or your spouse and the next day and go, man, I was a jerk yesterday. <laughs> you know, yeah. I was having a really bad day and I grumped at you and I'm really sorry and, you know, um, I hope it never happens again. So, um, and again, I think understanding that, you know, our brains are awash in the soup of chemicals um, just, just gives us a sense of toleration. And that kind of leads into my next question, which is um, why you decided to, because you've written a lot of scientific articles for the scientific community, um, but what what made you take this particular topic to write a book for the masses? Is it because there's so many um, ideas in it that are applicable, applicable to just all people? That's a great question. And um, also, I think, a good setup. So there's sort of a, a market test. You know, I started getting... I think because the, the neuroeconomics, you know, provided very clear insights into what human beings were doing, 
again, using money just to, to kind of objectively value things, that I had a lot of media attention uh, uh, you know, to my work starting around 2005. And, and then, you know, lots of other scientists kind of jumped on board and lots of people are studying oxytocin now. And so I get, first of all, this media attention in which, you, you know, you get used to telling stories um, and, you know, helping, say, TV producers, you know, craft, you know, 20 minutes or 30 minutes about some topic that they're interested in that you can, say, do that an experiment for. So it's kind of getting used to relating what I'm doing in narrative form, but also zillions of people, you know, emailing me, um, you know, patients asking for help, um, people asking for advice for their children, and then, you know, not really a, being, I try to answer all those, but I do it so slowly because, you know, I have, have a 35-person lab to run, so I'm just super busy. Um, so actually having a, a format to say, look, here's, here's in a compact way, in 200 pages, here's sort of everything I know about this from clinical applications of this work to, um, you know, again, how to design a, a more effective workplace. And, you know, um, you know I, I can do it better justice in book form and, again, with lots of narrative mm -hmm. illustrations at the larger point than, you know, try to respond in a you know, short email. So, um, yeah, so I think it was this sort of view that, I think like many writers, that all of a sudden you're kind of working on something, you you write a short piece or even a long piece for a magazine or newspaper, and, and all of a sudden people, you know, really respond to it, and you get a lot of feedback. Mm -hmm. And you go, hmm, okay, well, there seems to be demand for this. So um, so one thing I did, by the way, is was, uh, sorry about that, one thing mm -hmm. I did was um, to um, start a blog. Well, I was invited to do a blog at Psychology Today, and so for a number of years I sort of tried out parts of the material on the blog, and just got feedback. And blogs are great because you can see how many views you get uh, mm -hmm. and you can see the comments. And so a lot of the early writing I did was just kind of working it out on the blogging and seeing what resonated with people. Mm -hmm. um, for example, the, the um, you know, I didn't know how much of my own self to put in. And so I was very hesitant to put too much of my own story in the book at first. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the brief story I told you about being conned when I was 18 um, I wrote that up uh, as a as a blog piece, and most of my blogs get between a thousand and two thousand reads. Uh, you know, it's just pretty good. The last I looked, this um, this blog posting had gotten a quarter million reads. Oh my gosh! Yeah, and so you know, I mean, attorneys general are contacting me. You know, individuals are contacting me, and I start the story with with my story. I was 18. I'm working at a at an Arco station in a you know down by the freeway in a sketchy part of town. And here's what happened to me. And people really respond to that personal narrative. Mm -hmm. And so the feedback I got from that or I took from that was, oh, yeah, so that it's okay. It's okay to insert myself into some of these stories to understand kind of why people get getting evil. And I don't have to be the sort of, you know, omniscient narrator behind the scenes, you know, pulling all the strings. I can actually be part of the story because it's true. It's, it's after that happened, I, you know, you start thinking, you know, because I guess I lived in maybe a sheltered life. I lived in a little, you know, small suburban area in Central California, and you know, I, I don't run into bad people. I just didn't, you know. Anyway, so then I started thinking. It really planted that seed. Gee, what what the heck are the humans doing? Why, you know, why is that incredibly evil things, genocides, and you know, Nazi Germany, and on and on and on. And how do we get, you know, Mother Teresa? And it's kind of I like to say it's the longest debate humans have had since humans have been having debates. 
<laughs> what is our human nature? But you know, the deeper question, I think, is what's the inflection point? You know, how do we go? How do you get Jeffrey Dahmer and Mother Teresa? How do you get wonderful, sweet Krista and you know, crazy, raving maniac Krista? <laughs> and so that, you know, once I sort of all this catalyzed in my brain, I said, oh yeah, that's what I really want to know is what's that on-off switch there, and how does it work, and what accelerates it turning on, and what inhibits it turning on, and um, so you know, it, it's anyway. So that's part of the part of the narrative structure, I think. Mm-hmm. And even just the fact that you can sit here and say Jeffrey Dahmer versus Mother Teresa. I mean, those are both people. Those are people that everybody knows who they are. Everybody can say, okay, one is good, one is bad. So it makes it, uh, you know, just very palatable for ordinary people to get a grasp of what what you're talking about. Yeah, and very concrete. And I should also say that, you know, as I said earlier, I got sucked into doing all kinds of crazy experiments because people really wanted my help. And while I was working with prisoners, and, you know, the, there's a, a number of stories of um, prisoners I've studied, and they're, they're, you know, the stories are tragic. They're, um, you know, they're terrible. Or, um, or patients I've been asked to see, and, uh, you know, uh, one patient, uh, we were studying sexually abused women, look at the development of this oxytocin system. So oxytocin makes us feel empathy. That's why we want to connect to others. We feel emotionally connected to people. And that's actually the whole reason we're moral is because it's hard to treat someone you're empathically connected to badly because it's like mm-hmm. treating yourself badly because you're reflecting someone's emotions. So we were looking at the development of this and we studied uh, a group of patients, uh, female patients who had been repeatedly sexually abused as women. Mm-hmm. And indeed about half of them, the system, the brain system did not develop properly. It was a, uh, sort of a year and a half study, and they would come back. We imaged their brains. We would measure their blood, on and on and on. So uh, one of those was a, a woman that we studied uh, in this sample of sexually abused women, uh, women who had been sexually abused as children. And when we called her up to return for another part of the study, her family had told us that she was dead. Uh, they didn't tell us why, um, but the most likely causes would be a drug overdose or suicide. And so, you know, that's a really compelling narrative to identify, you know, what happens when these brain systems that allow us to connect and and really get the value of being embedded in communities, which is what it means to be a social creature like humans, mm-hmm. when that system fails. Um, and so, again, it's it's you know, from a from a book writing perspective, it's almost as if the book wrote me, right? I mean, I got pulled into so many of these cases that even though I could just show you pictures of the data from this sample of patients, by telling you that one story, it illustrates in a powerful way how important human connections are. Mm-hmm. So now, what, I hate to use the term dumbed down, but I feel like I would be the type of person that this material would have to be dumbed down for, so I guess that's okay. Um, in terms of just the, the scientific uh, the the data and the information itself. How much of that dumbing down did you have to do um, for for the masses? Yeah, that's a great question. And so um, I had this rule in uh, you know for the graduate students in my lab that they can't write a sentence of their dissertation until they can tell their mother in two sentences what they're doing <laughs> and why it's important. So I don't think this is dumbing down. I think this is being clear. I think if you really understand what you're doing you can be extraordinarily clear about it. So I try to apply mm-hmm. the same rule to myself. So I think the, you know, there's two ways to do that. One is to have a good illustrative story of the basic point, like the you know, woman who committed suicide, 
side. And then second is to back it up with just a little bit of, of data. So, you know, here are the statistics. 50% of the women don't release oxytocin. 100% of them were clinically depressed. Um, most of them had borderline personality disorders. And then, you know, go through the larger point. Okay, why? What's the brain doing? Well, the brain is the most little state in the body. And so if you're not using brain systems for the reason that they evolved, then those brain systems will redeploy because they're not going to sit fallow. And so, you know, having people understand that, uh, you know, if you see individuals who have these unusual backgrounds or personality traits, you know, their brains work differently. And even though all of us have, you know, modifiable brains at some level, um, you know, they're only modifiable within certain ranges. And so I think, again, having that sense of tolerance that, you know, we kind of are what we are. We're our, we are what we are genetically. We, we're a function of our developmental history. And, uh, you know, even with lots of therapy, there's only so much you can change. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I think doing the science on that clearly at a, you know, at a kind of broad but superficial level is enough. It's just enough to see the language of what's going on in the brain and to really understand um, what it means for their lives. It's, it's not, again, it's not to teach them neuroscience or to turn them into neuroscientists. It's just to give them enough to really understand the, the sort of question that we're looking at. Does, your, does what happened to you as a child matter for the way you connect to others? Mm-hmm. Okay, and let's run a couple of experiments to see what that means. Now let's put those experiments in context and use narrative to draw out the bigger points. And then, you know, as you know, every storyline opens up other storylines. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, one of the storylines is why are people ever resilient? Um, so, you know, we do see amazing resilience against, you know, terrible uh, outcomes. So where's resilience come from? Okay, so we can discuss that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think also keeping this notion that all writers know of the sort of Russian doll analogy. You know, what's the core central theme of the book? And um, as I started writing this, you know, I really realized you know, the more molecule, it's not a book about molecules, it's a book about morality, it's a book about human nature. Mm. And so making sure that everything comes back to that core point, we're really illustrating why human beings are necessarily moral. Uh, if you're not moral, you get isolated from your social group, that's maladaptive for social creatures like us. And so, you know, understanding the brain mechanisms that motivate morality, and including my mother as the straw man or straw woman, you know, why we don't need God or government telling us, you know, what's moral. Uh, at least most of the time we don't because we have this internal sort of gyroscope using oxytocin and a couple other brain chemicals that help us navigate through the sea of strangers in which we live. So, well, that, that's really interesting. I think it's it's really great speaking as somebody who is not scientifically inclined um, to be able to pick up a book like that and just, you know, see you, see the experiments, just see... Um, a lot of situations that I could put myself in and, and you know, just relate to you as the author. And, and it's, you know, I think that's what makes a really fantastic nonfiction book, especially for people that aren't um, familiar with the field that it's talking about. Um, and I, I wanted to switch gears just for a, a moment because um, you have a, a really great website called moralmolecules.com and it outlines uh, the ideas of your book. And it has a lot of um, photos. I mean, it almost looked like a piece of photojournalism, you know, taking you through each chapter with, with photos of the experiments and the different places you'd been. Um, how important do you think sites and resources like that are for a book, especially 
a nonfiction book like yours versus, you know, a straightforward fiction story. You can sort of read the blurb on the back of the book and say, okay, this is what it's about. Um, but do you think having an extensive website like that for a nonfiction book is, um, re- you know, really important for nonfiction writers? It's a great question. I think it's super important now. And um, a couple of years ago, I started tweeting. I've been building up my Twitter base and, um, as I said, blogging, um, you know, all of which takes time. And it's, you know, at first I thought, you, you know, it's just, it's, it takes too much time. But then once you have, you know, a thousand Twitter followers or something, and you feel like, now I'm obligated. Now I've got to communicate to my people. It's <laughs> the same way. And for this book, because there's so many things that, were so crazy that happened to me doing this research. Um, and a lot of that I took pictures of. And so, yeah, there's, so on the website, there's a, there's a session called Adventures from the Book. And I actually put it up there in a sort of selfish way. So, so many books I've read, mostly nonfiction, where you really get into the story and you're like, man, I'd like to see what that looks like in Papua New Guinea. Or, <laughs> or you know, how does it look when you jump out of an airplane and then, you know, you put a tourniquet on your arm and take your blood? I mean, I want to see that. So. <laughs> Um, I don't know about you, but oftentimes I'll like all Wikipedia these authors, and I just I'm kind of disappointed. So I thought, gee, from a from a marketing perspective, for people who have read the book and you want them to be even more excited about it and tell their friends, that you know having pictures, having there's a test on the website called the connection quotient to see how well you connect to people, having some sort of interactive things they can do is is a great way to um, encourage people to continue talking about the book, and for the individuals who have not read the book about the book. Uh, this gives them some sort of teasers mm-hmm. of what lies in, in um, Papua New Guinea. Or, uh, so the religion chapter is called Where Sex Touches Religion. Mm-hmm. But gee, how can religion and sex be related? Almost all religions are anti-sex. And, you know, uh, so, you know, it's just these, these kind of putting these hooks in. So, again, for the readers, you know, they're sort of value-added. Um, and by the way, even on the website, I put what I call bonus pictures. So, you know, as you know, there's a bunch of stuff that doesn't make it into the final cut of the book because – there's only so much time, and if it's not central, um, uh, you know, it was cut out. And the book, um, you know, really thought about making this book more of a Porsche than a Cadillac. So um, you don't want it to be fast, sleek, fun, hit you hard, hit you fast, and then close the back cover and you're done. <laughs> as opposed to the, um, uh, although, for, for example, uh, one of my favorite uh, nonfiction authors, Steven Pinker from Harvard, his new book on the end of uh, reduction to violence, it's, I don't know, like 600 pages. Oh, like, gosh. Man, I read the whole book, but I wouldn't enjoy doing that in 300 pages or something. Yeah. Anyway, so I really want to edit mine down. So a lot of material that didn't make it into the book that's still relevant to the larger story or the stuff that was done, you know, after the book um, had uh, been put to bed. And so this is all these bonus pictures and little descriptions of, you know, additional things we've done or um, other things people can see, uh, you know, um, uh, so I'll give you one concrete example of that. So last year, the BBC uh, was doing a show on good and evil, called me up, and we uh, designed an experiment with rugby players. So rugby, obviously, is, is big in England and, and reasonably big in the U.S., mm-hmm. but it's this very interesting case in which you need in-group cooperation and bonding, but out-group aggression. So how's the brain do that? So we actually ran an experiment uh, where I work in Claremont in Southern California with two rugby teams, and took blood before and after their warm-up and assessed these guys. And it was very visual. It's very compelling. Uh, it's not in the book because it happened after the book was finished. Mm. But, you know, some stills from that uh, BBC radio show are on the website. So it's just a great way to kind of illustrate this larger point that, 
because we have a moral molecule doesn't mean that we're singing kumbaya and hugging, you know, Garrus <laughs> or whatever, or hugging the guys on the opposite sports team, even though you might hug them after the match is over. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a much more subtle and graded approach, and, you know, that's what gives us the whole variety of human behavior. So, anyway, I think, yeah, it's very important. And um, as much as sometimes I regret, uh, you know, having to, uh, you know, tweet and blog all the time, not regret, it, 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 it's just that it takes time away from doing what I love the most, which is science. Um, mm-hmm. Having said that, Chris, I guess I should confess now to you um, live that <laughs> I'm working on the second book. So I certainly have the bug, the writing bug now. So Oh, that's um, fantastic. Yeah, you preempted my next question. So you, you have another yeah. book in the works. Is, it, is there a deadline for that, or when should we expect to see that? There's not. Um, I haven't even uh, finished the proposal, but the proposal is about halfway done. And uh, it's basically applying what we're doing, what I've been doing to specifically to organizations. So based on new research I've done and, again, to just being called by people to, to come to businesses. Uh, we're doing a lot of work with the U.S. military now to come in and really help them understand how you can um, manage people to, for a common purpose in a very effective way. And so I think as, of leadership as a neuroscience problem. If you're a leader, you've got to harness this other set of brains to accomplish some goal. And so I think there's some real neuroscience insight that we've gained from how to do that. So anyway, so yeah, that's the next book. Can you believe it? Great. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. That's really great. So we're we're um, almost out of time. We have a little segment we do at the end of our interviews called Rapid Fire. And um, it's just a series of five either or questions. And it just helps our uh, listeners get to know you a little bit better. Um, so I'll just say, you know, it'll say black or white. And you just choose whichever one you you prefer. Okay. All right. Uh, neurology or economics? Neurology. Um, this is actually a three-parter. England, Brazil, or Papua New Guinea? <laughs> <laughs> Brazil. Ah. Better scientist, Albert Einstein or Professor Frink from The Simpsons? <laughs> I gotta be Frink. <laughs> so would you rather win a Pulitzer Prize or the Nobel Prize? <laughs> Unfair question. Uh, Nobel. And uh, better brain lobe, frontal or occipital? <laughs> frontal. Great question. Say, we're going to ask him something he's never been asked before. I've probably never been asked that before. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Paul. Thanks, Krista. What a ball. <laughs> Uh, the, uh, the Moral Molecule is available now, and you can find out more about it online at moralmolecule.com. And you can visit Paul's blog of the same name at psychologytoday.com slash blog slash the-moral-molecule. And if you have any questions on the craft or business of writing, send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com or send us a tweet to at scriptscribes. And there's no and in the middle there, just at scriptscribes. Thanks for listening. 